Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa, rasa, rasa. This is the reality dysfunction. I want to thank all of you, or I want to welcome all of you for attending the Mexicanos 2070 uh, monthly speaker series hosted by Mexicanos 20, uh, dedicated to reclaiming and enriching our indigenous Mexican American culture and enhancing our way of life. Uh, my name is Ernesto Todd Morales. I'm a member of Mexicanos 2070 and will be the moderator for today's, for today's program. After we hear from our speaker, we will have time for questions and answers. You can uh, type your questions into the chat box, which can be found at the bottom of your screen. Or if you're on Facebook, you can leave your questions in the, um, in the threads below the uh, live feed. Uh, we will do our best to get those and bring them into the conversation. Uh, we will leave your video off and your mic, we we're asking you to leave your video off and your mic muted to eliminate background noise and prevent unwanted Zoom bombings as much as possible. The topic of today's panel is the uh, Chicano Institute for Teaching and Organizing. Our speaker today is Dr. Anita Fernandez, the director of the Chicano Institute for Teaching and Organizing. She will be talking about the outlawing of the renowned Mexican-American Studies program in Tucson, Arizona, and how Shito emerged to continue the legacy of the band program, which was proven to flip the achievement gap with stagger, stagger, <laughs> I've always had a hard time with that word, <laughs> staggeringly high graduation rates, the state test scores, and the numbers of students matriculating to college. As a result of the Arizona ban, ethnic studies programs have begun to develop across the country at an exponential rate, and in response, Shito has been at the forefront of offering research-based ethnic studies teachers training training, already having trained over 2,000 K through 20 educators across the country. So I'm going to leave it, I'm going to stop bumbling these words around and I'm going to leave it to uh, Dr. Fernandez. Thank you, Dr. Mireles. Um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to come to your uh, monthly webinar for Mexicanos 2070. Um, so thank you for those of you that are tuning in. Um, I'm also uh, really grateful to be here and honored to be representing our Shito Collective. Um, I am just one of um, our group and um, hopefully we'll, we'll represent them well. And so I'm coming to you from Tucson, Arizona. Um, we are on occupied Hohokam and Tohono O'odham land. And in my capacity here in Tucson, I am the director of Shito and I'm also the assistant dean at Prescott College, Tucson. Um, we are, have a field station here in Tucson for the college where we are actually building a K-20 uh, changemaker campus where we have students enrolled from kindergarten through all the way through PhD that are embarking on um, this educational model that uh, we, we are um, helping to train teachers in. So um, I have the best of both worlds because I get to not only teach in higher education and train teachers through Shito, but also be on a campus that has um, K through 12 students. So thank you for the opportunity. What, I, what I'd like to do is just talk a little bit about the historical context of how Shito was developed, um, why that's important, and, and, and then move into the actual work that we do and share with you a little bit about the framework that we use in our Shito professional development training. 
and then um, also touch on the current ethnic studies movement that's happening nationally. But I really want to open it up for questions. Um, so my plan is to um, hopefully only talk for like 25 minutes or 30 minutes max, and then uh, see what folks are more interested in hearing about. So I wanted to start with the, uh, the historical piece of how Shito came to be. Uh, historical literacy is critical to our work. It's one of the tenets of the uh, rehumanizing and decolonizing pedagogy that we train teachers in. And the importance of this historical moment that Shito grew out of um, was a moment similar actually to where we are today, where in Arizona in particular, but also nationally there in 2010, we were feeling this surge of um, anti-immigrant, anti-Mexican sentiment. Um, we were having uh, legislation written to remove opportunities for uh, Mexican-American uh, raza uh, families to have um, access to uh, schooling that um, was proven to increase their chances to matriculate to college. We were seeing undocumented families being separated. It was a, a time where um, all of these movements were, were happening at once. And so in 2010 in Arizona, um, SB 1070 was signed into law. SB 1070 is the otherwise known as a show me your papers law, a racial profiling uh, law that is one of the, the worst that we've had um, in terms of anti-immigrant uh, anti, anti uh, legislation. Um, right on the heels of SB 1070, the um, removal of Mexican-American studies took place with the signing of uh, House Bill 2281, is what it was called at the time. And House Bill 2281 eliminated um, any program in a public school that did a series of things, including um, parts of the law said you couldn't teach the overthrow of the US government, you couldn't teach um, you know, to just one race or class of students, and, and, and it went on. And so this, this law was, even though it was a state law, it was written specifically to target the Mexican American Studies program in one school district in Tucson. And so um, two years forward after it was signed, the Tucson Unified School District eliminated the Mexican American Studies program, as many of you I'm sure are aware. And um, they did eliminate that program under the umbrella of the ethnic studies programs in TUSD. They did not eliminate the African American Studies program or the Native American Studies program or the Pan-Asian program, only the Mexican American Studies program. Um, the students in, in that program fought, protested, the teachers joined them. Um, it was a long and drawn out fight uh, to keep the classes. And in 2012, when, when they were finally eliminated, um, Dr. Curtis Acosta, who at the time was teaching Chicano literature, um, said, you know, I, I don't want to stop teaching Chicano literature. These young people are um, fighting for their education. I need to continue uh, with this opportunity for them. And so uh, Dr. Costa started offering uh, his Chicano literature class on Sundays at a Southside Community Center here in Tucson, not knowing whether any students would actually come to a Sunday class. Um, and a handful, actually about 10 students, 
came to that class every Sunday. And in working with him um, around looking at the structure of that class, um, in my capacity at Prescott College, developed a mechanism for those students to actually enroll for college credit. And so the students that were in Sunday school, which was later, the, the media picked up on it and called it a freedom school for MAS, and it got a lot of publicity. And, and that was really the, the spark of the beginning of, of Shito, of the Chicanx Institute for Teaching and Organizing. Um, the te other teachers and, um, and Dr. Acosta and myself talked about how to continue on the legacy of that program. And um, Todd was, uh, Dr. Mireles was a part of that. Initially, he was the, you know, real push for the organizing part of Shito, um, that we needed to make sure that our educators are trained not only in pedagogy and practice, but also in community organizing skills. Because we knew that when eventually other program, other states or cities or districts would embark on also having ethnic studies programs that they would they too would come under attack and so that those community organizing skills were really important uh, for those educators. So fast forward, uh, we as a collective um, decided to um, sort of export what was happening in Tucson because that work couldn't be done in Arizona due to the fact that it had be, been um, outlawed. And so we were getting a lot of requests to train teachers outside of the state. And so we held a couple of institutes in Arizona and then quickly started uh, training teachers across the country, mostly on the West Coast, uh, mostly K-12 teachers, but then moved into also community colleges and, and universities. And so our, our work, you know, we're really a grassroots decolonial project um, that we would say is that, you know, was an act of resistance to what happened in Tucson, and then also an act of resilience to carry on that legacy that the young people and the teachers and everyone had developed and, and carried through here in, um, in Tucson for so long. So as we continue to do that work um, with teachers, we really focus on not just a decolonizing framework, but also a rehumanizing framework. And um, what I wanna do is, is share a, a visual that helps to explain a little bit about the actual context of the work that we do, what it looks like, um, and then um, talk a little bit more about the, the political aspects of that. So I'm gonna go ahead and share my screen. Okay, I think you all can see that. All right, so Tiawi is um, our, our decolonial framework that after many years of training teachers and organizers and administrators across the country, we um, came up with this framework that didn't look quite this beautiful, but our um, graphic artist, uh, Kai DeVolt, um, really helped us to conceptualize how to put this together. So. Um, in this circular way. And so what you'll see actually in the middle here, um, these community agreements are three agreements that we share with the folks that we work with um, in workshops before we actually get started with the work that we do. And all three of them are intentionally drawn from uh, Mexica indigenous um, 
epistemologies as a way to right off the bat um, really re-indigenize and decolonize uh, a professional development space. And so we go through what these three community agreements mean. And then the actual framework that we use in, in the professional development is based on the Nawiolin. Um, and it is based in the Nawiolin um, taken, the, the model is taken from the Mexican American Studies Program as a way of operationalizing uh, the Nawiolin. And so looking at the four movements or the four energias, we focus in on um, you know, Tetzcalipoca with critical self-reflection, uh, Quetzalcoa, precious knowledge, Huitzilipochtli, the will to act, and Xipetotec transformation. And so all of the teaching that we're doing, uh, whether it's showing, you know, demonstrate modeling a unit of study, or if it's really having teachers dig into that like critical identity work on themselves, or it's about building, how do you build a classroom space that's steeped in self-love for your students um, or counter storytelling, um, we're always embedding that within the context of this indigenous epistemology. So in the, in the work that we've done, we finally, um, laid out these six tenets of what we feel um, belongs in a decolonizing framework for, for education. And so we, we titled it uh, Tiawi, um, as I know many people um, on the Zoom know that um, Tiawi and Nahuatl means moving forward. And so um, really speaking to the positive and progressive movement forward and describing like the development of our own critical consciousness. And so Tiawi, the six uh, tenets um, you can see here, start with um, teaching critical consciousness, interconnectedness through student-centered instruction, agency through critical praxis, intersectional identity development, unity through community, and then historical literacy development. And so all of, the praxis, all of those parts of the praxis that we train folks in are also built around um, one tenant that is sort of embedded in all of this um, around solidarity building. And solidarity building within the context of um, within and among radical educators and organizers, how do we build solidarity you know, to counter what the reality is in, in a lot of the spaces that we work in, uh, really that, that neoliberal and even capitalist anti-solidarity strategies, that, that push for individualism and isolation. Um, so building solidarity within the context of the professional development institutes that we offer, and then encouraging the folks who work with us to really start to build their own coalitions and to join forces um, as, as a showing of that solidarity. So I'm not gonna go into each one of these tenants uh, specifically because I, uh, unless folks ask me to in a, in a little bit, but um, I just wanna touch on, um, you know, a little bit more about uh, this as a decolonial project and that, you know, we definitely recognize that we work in these uh, settler colonial spaces, that schooling was created, um, you know, for a very specific reason. 
and in, for us to come in and, and be working in schools and say we're decolonizing uh, the curriculum or we're decolonizing pedagogy, um, that there, there is contradiction there and that we address that in all, in, in all of our institutes that we work with and work in. Um, and so thinking about how that, how that contradiction actually works and, and also emphasizing with the folks that we train um, that when we talk about a decolonizing pedagogy, we're not talking about a reform movement. Uh, we're talking about a, a dismantling of settler colonialism and those structures that are in place and a rebuilding from the bottom up. Uh, when we hear about these educational reform movements, what tends to happen is that it, it looks really different and it sounds really different, but that all of those elements that support white supremacy are still a part of that project, as opposed to uh, dismantling all those parts of the house, so to speak, and rebuilding from the bottom up so that you truly have a decolonizing uh, curriculum and project. And so, um, you know, in this moment that we're in, um, ethnic studies is spreading um, by across the country, particularly in California and Washington. California um, is, you know, leading the way as always and just had a huge victory um, in the CSUs with um, House or Assembly Bill 1460 that the governor signed so that uh, starting um, in uh, I think next year that um, all students in the CSUs will have to take an ethnic studies course as a graduation requirement. And there was an incredible organizing that happened um, from several different um, constituencies, uh, CFA, Black Lives Matter, community organizers, professors, to um, actually make that a reality. And that is a, a huge win for them to make it not only um, an ethnic studies requirement, but specifically ethnic studies and not more of a social justice requirement, which is the direction that some people were, were trying to push it. So now California is looking at, and has been for quite a while, uh, a K, uh, high school um, ethnic studies requirement as well to require a one semester ethnic studies course as a, as a graduation requirement for high schoolers. And um, that's Assembly Bill 331. And um, there are a lot of our colegas and ad allies working on that curriculum that um, is being written for that ethnic studies requirement. And again, um, uh, coming up against some really intense resistance that is part of this work. And so even though uh, the experts who understand ethnic studies, understand decolonizing pedagogies, and are the ones who uh, wrote the original curriculum, they are um, coming up against some roadblocks um, that are very real and, and probably very expected as well. And so um, we're, we're really pulling for California on that front as well. In Washington, um, we've been working with the uh, Superintendent of Instructions off at Ethnic Studies Work Group to train them in this pedagogy. They are in the process of um, developing some statewide ethnic studies curriculum as well. And so Washington is way ahead um, with several districts requiring ethnic studies now as well. And so the program that was banned here in Tucson, even though it was obviously extremely 
hurtful and there are students now who don't have that program um, who actually you know are, are deeply impacted when we look at the impact that the program had with high graduation rates matriculation to college high test scores which are all sort of the traditional measures let alone the strong sense of um, you know identity and um, academic identity as well and belief in you know all of these having all of these goals um, to, to do what what you want to do and to be a an organizer and start to systemically break down all these systems that you're learning about um, even though that was happening um, you know this this program was banned and um, out of that I, that has been I've been told by a lot of districts in California and we have been told and and Washington that that was really um, you know something that sparked a lot of the, the movement in K-12 ethnic studies programs and so similarly the uh, seven-year legal battle that took place um, after the signing of House Bill 2281 did eventually end in victory after a very, very long legal battle to, uh, that went to the uh, Ninth, Ninth Circuit Court in San Francisco, came back to Tucson in the federal court. There was a, a trial here where several of um, um, the Archito Collective, as well as other Chicano Studies scholars, literally were on trial and had to um, you know, defend the right to teach Chicano history. And so um, after that, finally, um, there was a win. And now, um, you know, that we've, we've won that victory. And, and folks often ask, you know, well, did Mexican American Studies come back? And no, that program is not back. And what that court case has done is set an incredible legal precedence, not only for future ethnic studies programs, but um, for a lot of different uh, reasons. But one of the most uh, recent um, cases that this um, finding was used in was in, in, um, the current administration's attempt at a Muslim ban. And um, the findings uh, from this case were used as, as precedents, as well as one of the um, fights to keep uh, the DREAM Act intact and DREAMers um, able to um, go to school was also used for that. So that's a, a, a large, you know, that's a, having far, far further reach than um, just looking at uh, locally what's happening here. So I'm getting a message that we have a lot of questions. So I'm going to um, go ahead and pause and hopefully Dr. Mireles will give me some questions. Yeah, I, I actually have a, I have a question for you, um, Anita. One of the things that, that I've been wondering is, um, you know how how is it that we can work on on the local level to um, uh, coordinate with you all to uh, you know bring what you guys are doing through Shito to local school districts and you know get more people trained. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's as I you know as you said like a second ago, um, it's really great that ethnic studies is you know um, being uh, made like that school districts have to have it but the real question is going to become now you know who's going to teach ethnic studies and what is that ethnic mm -hmm. studies going to be like but just just because it says it's ethnic studies 
doesn't mean that it's the type of curriculum that was doing the amazing work that the MAS teachers were doing um, mm -hmm. in Tucson. So what can we do on a local level to kind of push yeah. that along? That's a great question. And um, I actually heard uh, Dr. Allison Tintiago Cubales, who's been really at the forefront of a lot of the um, ethnic studies, K-12, um, developing professional development for that. Really, she um, presented on the curriculum at the um, AERA conference last year and posed that, that issue as well. You know, even if we come up with this critical, you know, amazing curriculum, if teachers don't know what to do with that curriculum and there's no oversight, um, is that, can that actually do more damn, more harm than good? And so, um, you know, we go, we do go and train teachers um, so folks can contact us if they're interested. We have a lot of colleagues that are doing consulting work um, in California, in Washington, that are doing amazing uh, work as well, training teachers. And, and what I'm hoping is that we will start to build a coalition of the folks that are really doing this work, criti this critical, more critical ethnic studies, professional development, rather than what we're seeing, um, which is the sort of corporatization of um, training teachers or writing curriculum for ethnic studies that really isn't, does, isn't even close to a true ethnic studies uh, framework. And so if folks are interested in our work, you can contact me. I can put our information in the, um, in the chat. We also have an upcoming, right now we've, we've really been working with districts and in, even universities a lot this moment that we're in. Suddenly people are very interested um, in ethnic studies and anti-racist work. Um, but we do have an upcoming fall institute that um, is open to the public and, and it will be virtual because of the conditions we're in right now. And so I'll go ahead and put that uh, link in the chat if anyone's interested, but also know that we do have, um, you know, folks who are around the, around the country doing similar work. I'm not sure if that answers your question. Oh, no, it uh, totally answers it. I, we have actually a question from uh, Facebook from uh, Cruz Rodriguez. Uh, yeah, Cruz, Cruz. Says, hello, Anita. The university I work at, Osberg University in Minneapolis, has committed to starting an ethnic studies program. Could you offer any advice, resources, et cetera, in establishing a program like this on our campus? And Cruz is, where is Cruz right now? Cruises in Minneapolis. In Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, we certainly have connections with folks who have been, you know, in the Bay Area in particular, who have been at the, you know, in the ethnic studies programs there where they came out of that we could connect you with. Um, I would say, you know, we could certainly provide support in connecting. Um, uh, if, you're, if it's at a university level, I think that um, it would be really um, prudent to work with the best ethnic studies programs that we have in, in higher ed in the country and uh, link folks up. So Cruz, you can just reach out to me. Do you know how to contact me? Um, this question is from the Zoom participants. It's from uh, Francisco Lopez, uh, who is a teacher in uh, Southern California. He says, is there a lesson bank where possible sample lessons can be found? Example, somewhere in the Shito website. Right now, we don't have a sample lesson bank. And um, one of the reasons that we don't have that is, um, you know, we get asked all the time, can, can we just get our hands on the, the original curriculum or curriculum that you all have? And so much of the work we do is to help teachers to design 
really community responsive lessons and units and scope and sequences that is specifically written for your youth in where you are um, in that moment. And so we definitely have tools that we can share. We do have curriculum, but we're writing it for specific um, places. So right now we're helping uh, San Jose Unified develop their first ethnic studies course and writing all of that curriculum. But um, if um, you reach out to me, I'd be happy to, you know, support in, in that process. Okay. Um, I know that we have some other, other questions uh, that are coming. I know I think that that's really pretty interesting what you just said, because really, if you look at like, um, uh, well, I mean, you know, revolutionary movements from around the world or people who lead, uh, you know, who've led revolutions, the number one thing or number one piece of advice that they always give is that, uh, you know, no two places are exactly the same. So I think it's uh, really fascinating that you guys are doing that work. I mean, that shows a lot of uh, uh, dedication to the craft of, of ethnic studies. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see, uh, another question from Facebook from Alfred Chavez says, what about student support services? I work at a community college and we struggle with retention of our students of marginalized backgrounds. Are there some support services you'd recommend? Yeah, hi Alfred Chavez. Um, we have actually worked a lot at the community college level, also in California, um, uh, with counselors who attend our institutes. We have a lot of counselors who are um, in the Puente, part of the uh, Puente program. And so they actually use the, 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 the different tenets of the epistemology within their counseling um, and, and create support services based around that decolonial framework. And I have a couple of folks in particular in, in Napa who are, have been a big part of Chito expanding um, that I would love to connect Al with if he reaches out to me um, because they have done incredible work with retention and developing resources for um, minoritized students. And they've actually used a lot of the, the ethnic studies and indigenous uh, epistemologies to do that work. So I would love to, um, again, connect them. Okay, um, this question is from Carlos Hernandez. Uh, he asks, uh, do you see an advantage of starting academy, ac academies slash universities, alternative schools, as opposed to working within the established state schools? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I, yes. And, um, you know, if I could uh, have a magic wand in this moment, uh, we would have an autonomous K-20 school, um, at, you know, to really remove ourselves from, uh, you know, so many of the restrictions that are put on uh, K-12 educational spaces. Um, I've, I've had the opportunity to be part of, you know, working in that charter world, and then also in the um, free, but also private schools in K-12, and trying to raise enough money to make that a reality. Um, and then, you know, also at the university level. And so I really believe in, in trying to build those autonomous spaces. And if there is a way for us to begin to, you know, 
um, work on that collaboratively and then create models for others to um, replicate that. On the flip side, I also, I do believe, you know, working, trying to, to impact the, the public school system in particular. Um, but then, I, you know, I, have, I also have that voice in the back of my head, like at whose expense and for how long? How long do we wait for our youth to um, be pushed out and, and, and marginalized in so many ways before we say, you know, this just isn't, it isn't working. Uh, and in some places it's working more than others, but those structures are still in place that advantage some students and disadvantage others. And until we can um, eliminate those barriers, um, I'm all for, you know, developing other structures, having escuelitas and, um, you know, grassroots community-based spaces for education. Um, I think that's, that's critical to the work uh, that, that we all know is really, really necessary. So thank you for that question. We have another question from Facebook. Um, this person is asking, what first-gen support programs do you recommend for high school seniors applying to college as ethnic studies majors? So can you say it again? First. Are they in a specific state or? Um, I don't know. They, they don't, they, they're not saying that they're in a specific state. They're, uh, the question is what first gen support programs do you recommend to high school seniors applying to college as ethnic studies majors? And actually um, Cruz answered this question a little bit further down in the chat by um, talking about the TRIO programs, Upward Bound, mm -hmm. and um, well, Upward Bound, which is a pre-college program. Mm -hmm. um, and that's definitely, they're in Orange County, California. Yeah. The person who asked the question. And I know Cruz worked with them and definitely Upward Bound. Um, I don't know if Carlos is on uh, this call, but um, yeah, I would, I would recommend those two as well. Okay. As well as Puente. Okay. All right. Um, and then we have another question. Uh, what similar work does, or what similar work do you know of being done in Texas, uh, specifically San Antonio uh, to the Valley area? The work that I know that's being done in Texas is um, more statewide that, I, that I'm aware of. Um, a, good, a good friend of ours, colleague, um, is now on the um, Board of Education in Texas. And they have recently passed, you know, um, not just Mexican American, but also African American studies requirements. My understanding is that it's not necessarily funded yet. Um, but I do know that in San Antonio, we have colleagues who are more at the community college level, um, Tony Diaz and others. And then in the Rio Grande Valley, we have some folks that we've worked with down there as well. Again, more so at the, at the college level. Um, but I could connect whoever was asking that question with those people if they'd like. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Let's see. Yeah, I think um, going back to the uh, alternative, you know, schools, right, as opposed to working within the established schools, I think... Um, <laughs> I think that that's uh, I think that's that's kind of a kind of an interesting point, really. I mean, because one of the things that we do all the time is talk about how 
it is that the institutions of the society are constantly failing our, our community, right? Like education is constantly failing our community, um, you know, from K through, you know, K through 20, um, you know, that the police are failing, not just our community, but they're just failing, you know, communities of color in, in general. And so, yeah, this whole idea, but at the same time, you know, people get very, um, they get, they get very, uh, they feel very strongly about, you know, about public schooling and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. I, th I think, uh, yeah, I would agree with you. I think it's important for us to be able to think about how we can, um, how we can begin to establish uh, our own uh, structures of learning, right? So that we're able to, um, well, so that we're able to do that, so that we're able to provide the type of education that is, is relevant to, to our community. I mean, that really has to do with autonomy that really has to do with self-direction. And so I guess, you know, that's kind of part of my point. I mean, where do you see, you know, Shito like kind of falling into the uh, overall, uh, you know, uh, Chicano, uh, Latino uh, movement, you know, in the United States? Um, yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you see it fitting in there? I mean, I know that people don't necessarily think that like teachers are the most radical of all, but teachers are pretty freaking radical, man. So, you know, I mean, how does it, uh, How's, how's that that sort of idea flow through the work that you guys are doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think, well, we know that all the work that teachers do it is revolutionary regard, you know, and very political, um, regardless of how you're teaching. Um, and I see our work um, as, you know, directly, hopefully directly impacting educate not only educators but also administrators that have a lot of control and um, and community organizers too and professors and advisors and counselors that are you know directly working with um, our youth and in that capacity they are creating the conditions for our young people to actually understand these systems that are um, pushing them out or holding them back. And then they're also learning the skills of how to start to dismantle all of those pieces. And so that is from the inside um, doing that work. And, um, you know, a lot of our work came out of work, you know, specifically Chicano studies. And obviously we're using a Mexica indigenous epistemology in our work. And at the same time, when we're training folks, um, they're not all working with just uh, Rasa youth. They're working with, um, usually working with BIPOC, you know, young people um, and, and, you know, also white students as well, but for the majority BIPOC students. And um, the, the decolonizing pedagogy, it, you know, has an impact on all of those students and all of the teachers as well. And so I see this as, um, you know, when we think about the Chicano pipeline and the rate at which young people are being pushed out, young grasa are being pushed out of uh, not just high school, but also, you know, college, that this is a direct, you know, um, response. The work that we're doing is, uh, our attempt is for it to be a direct response to that and to try to not only have students, you know, matriculate onto college, but to have the tools that they need um, if they choose to do that, but also have the tools to um, develop, you know, that critical self-identity and also um, work and develop, a, as we've seen with a lot of the graduates from the MAS program and a lot of the programs that we've, the young people that we've trained through Shito, to just develop incredible um, 
autonomous and self-sustaining and um, opportunities for their specific community that they live in or their body or wherever they are. And so I see, I see that as our, you know, our purpose, the reason that we had continued this work and are trying to continue this legacy is to, um, you know, create the conditions for Chicanx young people and families and communities to, um, to thrive. Um, and, and to, to lead also. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Anita, I, I think I, I, I would be really interested and I think it would be really good at this point, if you could talk to us a little bit about the, the legal battle side of this. I, I think that, um, you know, the, uh, I mean, it's, it's clear to me, at least in the, in the Chicano, Mexicano population, the Latino population of this country, that the, um, the battle that took place in Tucson over Mexican American studies has, has certainly passed into, you know, into myth, right. In, in the mm -hmm. sense that, you know, people know about it and there's all these stories and, you know, and, and there was this fight and, you know, the students rising up and the teachers filing the suit. Um, but, you know, like, like, I think like most myth, most myths, people don't really understand how it is that they end, you know, there's just sort of this, they just kind of, you know, end, right? But this ends in a very specific way and with a real victory. And I think maybe if you could even just talk a little bit about, you know, what that victory really means. You know, I know that you talked about it a little bit more, but like mm -hmm. to really draw it out, I mean, earlier, but to really draw it out for us and to, you know, because, because this was, I mean, they, the, the legislator made a law. It was illegal to do this. I mean, they could have put somebody in jail for doing this, right? Mm -hmm. So like mm -hmm. for teaching Mexican-American studies and just kind of walk us through that process a little bit, which I know that you were deeply involved in. Yeah, I think for me, the, um, you know, seeing that, pro that legal process and um, being able to attend, you know, the hearing at the Ninth Circuit and then also the, the trial here in Tucson. Um, but yeah, uh, it was, and I can't even put, really put words to what that experience was like, particularly the trial to see um, people that you know and love having to defend, you know, the history and culture um, of uh, their ancestors um, on a stand while also having the, the people that wrote, that were, you know, back to the Tom Horn and John Hoopenthal who um, were the ones that instigated this law using the same rhetoric up on the stand um, in the not so coded language, right, of, you know, um, that we need to fight La Raza, that we need to end it, that, um, you know, you all are communists and you are anti-American and you teach hate, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so to hear that rhetoric all the way until the end um, was really, uh, it was pretty incredible. I encourage anyone who's really interested in that, that um, legal, that part of the legal battle, um, you know, the transcripts from that court hearing that lasted, I think it was 10 days. Um, it is just um, something that you, it, it's almost hard to believe that that, the, that was actually taking place. Um, Sean Arce, Dr. Arce had wrote his dissertation on a, on a, literary analysis, I'm not sure if that's the term he uses, but really breaking down, actually looking at the words that people used um, and analyzing that, uh, which is fascinating. And so at the end, yes, it was very um, 
anticlimactic in the sense that everyone got really quiet and, you know, a year and a half went by and then there was a victory and then nothing. And so, um, but it wasn't nothing. It's a, it sets incredible precedents. Um, and it, um, it also demonstrates that there have to be a consolidated or not consolidated, but, um, you know, a, a community, a collective of folks that are so committed to whatever the issue is um, that they're fighting against. And through that whole legal system over the course of seven years, watching people just get worn down and worn down and having to um, testify and um, go through this whole process over and over and over again in order to preserve their own humanity, right? That um, is, is something that should be uh, revered and, and really written about in the, in the history books um, because this group of teachers and their children, their children ended up being um, plaintiffs as well, um, is, is something that is, um, you know, I, I, I'm bringing that, it's making me think of Maya Arce, um, who was one of the plaintiffs in the case, Sean Arce's daughter, and her um, having an opportunity to meet Sylvia Mendez. Um, and just this incredible historic moment of these two Chicanas um, who had such an impact on Chicano history in terms of um, rights for Mexican-American, for, for Chicano folks, and for also for an impact on the courts. And so this case, you know, has that same weight as the Mendez case. It, it is a, something in, uh, in Chicano uh, law and history that will be written about as uh, an incredible victory, not just for uh, Chicano, Chicana people, but also for all people, as we have seen with the recent use um, for uh, the Muslim ban. And, and I think we'll continue to see it used in a lot of different um, legal battles. Um, so it, it's critical. It's critical and um, it should be um, taught about. And, you know, that, that struggle, that the whole story that has been with the Mexican-American studies and people interested in replicating the program, there's also, like you're saying, that legal side that is really, really important to understand. Yeah, I mean, because that, that pretty much, that settled it, right, in terms of of what was going to happen. Yeah, I thought that that part was also very interesting too. You know, when um, I was at Michigan State in my graduate program uh, in in the around 2010, uh, that time, and uh, Sean had reached out to me. Uh, he and I had both worked uh, for the United Farm Workers uh, in the 90s. And so we hadn't seen each other for a very long time. And I worked in Detroit and he worked in Los Angeles, but, um, you know, he reached out and it was uh, amazing to me um, because, you know, as a person who is getting a PhD in Chicago studies, uh, one of the things that I was very, con very concerned about was uh, what appeared to be a very uh, real decline in the um, uh, interest in Chicano studies. And just watching over the last several years how this uh, battle has um, really uh, revitalized, regalvanized, right, reignited, you know, the the spirit of ethnic studies, and um, has really uh, raised the interest in Chicano studies itself. I mean, it's just 
it's fascinating. I mean, I know those guys wanted, I know that, you know, Tom Horn and Hoopenthal and those guys that they wanted to do us in, but I think they may be the, some of the best things that ever happened to Chicano studies. So for that, we thank you gentlemen. Um, <laughs> Cause you lost. Uh, there's another question here. Is she, is, is she, are you aware of how the case was used as a precedent in the Muslim ban in other cases? Uh, another, uh, what legal question, uh, the question is what legal question did it answer? I don't know specifically. Um, I think it's around um, the constitutionality of curriculum, but I'm not, I'm not clear on how that's connected to the Muslim ban, but I can find that out. Um, I, Sean is usually the one that's sharing all the legalese. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Are there, uh, other questions that people would like to ask? If you can just drop them into the, um, chat, that would be, um, that would be very good. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Dr. Fernandez, do you have any other things that you would like to, us to be aware of? Um, I did put the institute, our upcoming institute in the chat. I'll also attach uh, an article that I recently published in um, Equity and Excellence in Education that outlines um, everything that we've been talking about within the context of Chito's decolonizing professional development work. Um, so I will uh, put that in here. And yeah, but please reach out if folks, um, I know there were several people that had qu specific questions about hopefully getting connected to other people and I would be happy to do that. Um, I'll put my um, email in the chat as well. Okay, and, all right. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, all right then, um, this was good, exciting. Thank you, Anita, for uh, joining us. I really, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing through Shito and how important it is, and just you know, making sure that uh, that that we're training teachers to um, to you know to really do the work of um, well, like emboldeningly emboldening our you know intellectually emboldening our um, our youth. I mean, I think it's a uh, I think it's a big deal. I think it's it's vital. It's for the future, right? So, all right. Okay. Good opportunity, Todd, and your group. Yeah. No, it's good. We'll talk real soon, okay? All right. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Hey, homie. I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa, rasa, rasa. This is the reality dysfunction.